You're listening to episode 165 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. Well, I'm joined once again by Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Church History, continuing our series on the early church. Dr. Strange, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's good to be with you and to... Greet all of our listeners, those out, as I used to hear when I was in a, ki- a kid in a church I was in, he would always say, hello, those in radio land. Well, something like that. Hello. Well, today, Dr. Strange is going to be elaborating a little bit on a, a very well-known early church preacher. His name is John Chrysostom. Dr. Strange, first question related to that figure in the early church, what does his name mean? Well, Jared, his name means what perhaps many of us would like to be, but sadly or not. But uh, no, his, it's, he's golden mouth. Uh, so he didn't call himself Chrysostom. Uh, this is a reflection uh, that history has bestowed upon him. It was bestowed in his time upon him. Um, he was such a magnificent preacher that he was typically met uh, his sermons, which were a kind of lexio continua. He would, let me just say this about his preaching. He would uh, study uh, the material that he was going to preach on. Let's say he's preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and we have a lot of his sermons. We have uh, 90 of his sermons, for example, in the Gospel wow. of Matthew. These are all pretty readily available. So um, you he's studying a portion of the Gospel of Matthew. He ascends the high pulpit there uh, in the cathedral in Constantinople. And he doesn't have notes. He doesn't have any of that with him. He speaks out of his study. He speaks out of his heart. And he does, as I say, a kind of lexio continua, a kind of running commentary approach. Uh, And there are amanuenses, that is, people, stenographers, taking down his his uh, words there that's how we get these sermons they they he had several stenographers people taking it down but it was typical that he would preach with such power and passion and um immediacy mm-hmm. and and if you read his sermons uh, some would say that there's a, there's a there's a bit of self-righteousness or arrogance or moralism you, you can you can see some of that kind of thing there, but they're really, they're very outspoken. They're very fresh. They have a great deal uh, at many points of psychological insight mm. uh, that's really helpful. But he is, and he also, he was so loved by the people because it was typical of him to really call upon the wealthy of this world to do their duty and to make sure that their fellow believers in the church who may be impoverished had what was sufficient uh, for life and limb, that is to say that they could live their lives uh, in spite of their poverty. And so he called upon uh, those that had to be sure to share with their fellow believers who were have-nots. And, of course, he was loved by many for this. He was loved for being able to take to task the wealthy. But my point is, is he would preach these very powerful sermons And they were often met with applause. This, uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners, maybe some of you who are preachers, thinking, well, that's never happened. (laughs) But but Chrysostom, as you can imagine, wasn't that keen on this. Uh, He appreciated that his listeners appreciated his preaching of the word. But he gave a sermon in which he specifically said, 
My preaching of the word is meant, first of all, to edify you, to build you up, to ultimately to glorify our God, to glorify Christ. And it's an act of worship. Uh, and so your applause, while understood and appreciated, if it means you appreciate the word being preached, is not really appropriate. Uh, and he counseled them otherwise. And that sermon was very well received. In fact, it was met with thunderous applause. <laughs> <laughs> what did some of the elite then do with his messages? How did they react? What were some of the consequences? Well, the, he had no hesitation in calling the elites to self-denying, humble uh, lives. And that wasn't liked. Uh, let me say this. he, he um, You can imagine... Uh, he's he was out in the districts. Uh, he starts off uh, in Antioch preaching there. Uh, he's he was like like these others that I've talked about. Think just back a little bit to the Cappadocians. He too was a monastic. Uh, he was a hermit in, in that. In fact, he injured his health with the rigors of such a life. He was so strict mm. at it. Uh, he became a deacon. Uh, sort of in the first order of clergy in 381 and a priest in 386. That's where he became particularly renowned. There in Antioch, he served a parish. He became renowned as a preacher in uh, giving his famous homilies, especially from 386 to 398. That's a, a great part uh, of what we have uh, from him. And then he's made the patriarch of Constantinople in 398 against his wishes. Mm-hmm very much against his wishes. And I would say beyond his desire and or ability to deal with such a a highly charged political position, because you can imagine being, you know, now the the head, the uh, the second in Christendom, as the council had said at Constantinople, he's got many administrative responsibilities. And whereas you may recall, I said Basil was renowned, Basil the Great was renowned as a great administrator somewhat like Gregory I later on, and others were. He was not. Chrysostom did not have a political bone in his body. Mm. He was quite politically naive, uh, you might even say. And a Theophilus of Alexandria was very envious of him. Alexandria really becomes the third-ranking city, but Alexandria did not believe that it was after it was after Constantinople. It resented that. Alexandria saw itself as the as the Athens of the East, saw itself mm-hmm. as the intellectual center. So Theophilus kind of went after him and had him falsely condemned, really, at the Senate of the Oak. I mean, he brought some false charges against him. But ultimately, he was condemned uh, for a number of things, including Origenism, which wasn't a, a, true in any apparent way, but it was probably that that monastic sort of connection, and of making improper remarks about Eudoxia, the empress, Mm -hmm. improper as in referring to her, among other things, as Jezebel. And um, so the point is, when he becomes then the Patriarch of Constantinople, he's in this position. He had been out in Antioch as as a presbyter and so forth, and now he's in this position. And as he gathers around him, a, a, a patriarch of a, a great city like this would have clergy around him, sort of a cabinet, you might say, like the Pope has a curia, mm-hmm. we refer to it in Rome. All of these would have clergymen around him and would be part of his household. Well, you can imagine people thinking, oh, this is great. Okay, I want to, my, I'm, if you're ambitious as a, 
as a clergyman in the church of that day, you might be shooting to be and serve in the household or in the cabinet of the patriarch or the the archbishop there. And you would think, well, this is going to be a very fine lifestyle because it's going to be close to noble or regal. And he conducted his household like he was a monk. Mm. And you can imagine a lot of the other clergy weren't real happy. They were thinking, this isn't what we signed up for. We, we're coming to serve with the, the patriarch, and we had a better living back out in the district being a parish priest in this place or that place. We had a better life than this rigorous, strict, monastic kind of life because you can imagine he still continued to live something of that, and he thought, well, all the clergy around me should live it. And he thought about the 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 wealthy, as I said, and the noble people in the in the church, the powerful. He thought you should all be very humble as Christ was humble. And mm-hmm. this is the foot washer. And so he, um, he, he remained, I guess you could say in a certain sense, very idealistic, but that he ran afoul of people, not intending to, right. but he ran afoul of people because they didn't want to be so deprived. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want to be like that. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, he particularly, you know, he had come from Antioch, he went to Constantinople, and as I say, he had this, he had a particular kind of, uh, you know, bit of a, a bout with uh, Alexandria. So Alexandria and Antioch took rather different approaches to some things then. Can you describe those? Yes, uh, that, that, that gets us into that, that question. Uh, gets us into a significant feature of the whole early church. If you think in terms of the early church, you can think of the two great cities of Alexandria. Everybody knows where that is. That is in, well, it's a little confusing for some if you don't remember this from your history. It's in Lower Egypt, which means it's in the Nile Delta region uh, on uh, on the uh, the Mediterranean. And you might think, well, isn't that Upper Egypt? Well, no, Upper Egypt is the other direction. You remember how the Nile flows. Right. It has to do with how the Nile flows. Uh, it flows up into the Mediterranean. So um, that city was a great city. And then Antioch, where, of course, they were first called Christians. You know, mm-hmm. Paul was yep. sent out of Antioch. You all know where that is in the Syria region. So you have one that's north of Palestine in the region of Syria and you have this one in Egypt, and they take different positions. For example, in terms of biblical interpretation, the people in Antioch are very much what you could call historical. You could call them grammatical historical, and they tend to take a more literal read of a text. They want to know what did the author mean and what was the intent. Whereas in Alexandria, they take a very, um, they take a very uh, kind of highly symbolic, what is called an allegorical approach. And this allegorical approach goes all the way back uh, there to Philo. Uh, and I've mentioned this somewhat when we talked about Clement of Alexandria mm-hmm. and Origen, that kind of an approach. And you might say, well, which is right? Our listeners might say, which is right? Well, to point out, to understand and to root everything in the in the grammatical historical is correct. But also, we want to understand the spiritual significance and even symbols in in proper ways uh, as they may be, particularly in apocalyptic literature. So we would take something, you might say, from both camps somewhat to develop a kind of typological approach. 
but also then with respect especially to the question of Christ, uh, Alexandria tends to stress his deity and Antioch tends to stress his humanity. And if they're going to go in a wrong direction, Alexandria with somebody like Apollinarius, we heard about him the last time, is going to stress the deity at the expense of his humanity. Mm. They do that sometimes. And then in Antioch, sometimes they stress his uh, humanity at the expense of his deity. Uh, Someone who was associated, uh, who studied under the same person that Chrysostom did, Theodore of Mopsuestia, he tends to go in that direction. And then we'll talk later on about someone called Nestorius. But they, they tended to have a view sometimes in one of the heresies of Antioch was reflected by a man called Paul of Samosata, who was an adoptionist. And adoptionism means that Jesus was a man who became God. Hmm. They think that he was born a man, perfect man, all that, but he becomes God at his baptism. Well, we all know that Jesus is God eternally who became man. Mm-hmm. And so that's a heresy. But so you get these differences between Alexandria and Antioch. And if the differences are held in check, they can be fine, but they tend to, they tend to often get out of bounds. And in the case of Chrysostom, they were very much at play. Uh, they were so much at play that it really ultimately cost Chrysostom his life. As I said, he was uh, condemned by the Synod of Oak in, in 403, uh, and though he was greatly loved of the people, and he was supported very much throughout the West, the Bishop of Rome and the Western Church loved him, um, he was sent into exile uh, at that point in 403-404. Um, he died in 407, and so his life was a rather sad uh, ending. Uh, I think it's one of those early church instances of the misuse of the power of the church, the misuse of the discipline of the church. It was used for political reasons rather than truly godly one. And so um, Chrysostom, great preacher though he was, uh, had a rather sad ending. Mm. Well, next time, Dr. Strange will wrap up this brief portion of the early church and talk about Ambrose. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcast. And wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.